it's so good to be together with you here again, looking into uh, the mind of Christ as revealed in the Word of God, singing of His praises, rejoicing at His goodness together. It's a blessing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, one of the reasons we, we come to church is to be better acquainted with God, right? Isn't that one of the things you'd say, I, I want to know God more. I want to be familiar with my Savior. I think that's true. And I think that's an objective here as we gather week after week, which is why we open God's Word and probably sing God's Word and pray God's Word and, and fellowship around God's Word. Uh, we want to know God. Um, so how important is it really that we know God personally? Well, <clears throat> Jesus in John 17 prayed a prayer called his high, sleep, high priestly prayer. And in verse 3 of John 17, Jesus makes it pretty clear how important it is that we personally know God. Listen as I read for you this verse from the prayer of Jesus. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus says your knowledge, your intimacy with God is what results in eternal life. In fact, it is eternal life. That knowledge of God, that intimacy with God is, in fact, eternal life. So how important is it that you know God? I'd say really important. Really important if you're interested in eternal life. So it's good that we gather. It's good that we open the scriptures. It's good that we pray and seek the Lord and pursue him with all of our heart. Because this is what we want. If we knew God, and this has been my argument for the past few weeks that I preached from Psalm 119, if we knew God, we would be zealous for God, if we truly knew him. And in fact, I think your zeal is equal to the depth of your knowledge of God. You remember back in Psalm 119, verse 139, the author says, my zeal consumes me. Does your zeal for God consume you? Does it take up your life? Does it take up anything? Let's turn back to Psalm 119 together. Zeal, as we've learned over the past few weeks, is radically opposite to indifference, isn't it? Zeal and indifference are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Indifference about God is a consequence, I think, of not knowing him well enough. The reason someone may be indifferent is because they don't know what they have in Christ. They don't know God well enough. And so, they don't know what they're missing. Eh, no big deal. I'll go to church when it's convenient. I'll open my Bible when I remember about it. Is it? So, so indifference is a, a child of not knowing God well enough. If you really knew God, indifference, apathy, distraction wouldn't be a problem at all to us. So I think indifference isn't the enemy here. You know, we talk about that. Indifference is an enemy. We, we fight against indifference and apathy in the Christian life, which we should. But I don't think indifference is the enemy. Here's the enemy. 
not knowing Christ well enough, not knowing, truly knowing, genuinely knowing God to the depth that we ought. <clears throat> Having what the world would define as a radical commitment to Christ, seen in a life of sacrificial loving, sacrificial giving, that kind of radical stuff, isn't achieved by pursuing those commitments. A radical commitment to Christ is achieved by knowing him better. The solution to your indifference, the solution to your struggle with sin, the solution to whatever spiritual malady you may be struggling with, is a deeper knowledge of Christ. That's the solution. So the, the solution to our indifference isn't trying harder, which is what we legalists run to immediately. We try harder, pray harder, serve more, give more. No. The solution to our indifference isn't trying harder, it's knowing Christ more deeply. If you will but know Christ, all this resolves itself. All our indifference, all our apathy, all of our shallowness in the Christian world, in the Christian life, evaporates. Instead of his commands being burdensome, oh, i got to go to small group again, or unimportant or ignored, those commands become a joyful and zealous daily pursuit. Our love, for example, will be radically different than what the world offers or expects, or even what some Christians think and would describe as loving. We would go far beyond the contemporary Christian in what they believe is the norm for loving one another. A superficial read through the, New Testament, through the New Testament establishes this fact. Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And how is it that Jesus has loved us, friend? Would we say it's sacrificial? <laughs> yes, we would, of course, certainly. As I have loved you, so you must love one another, John 13. So how did Jesus love us? Would, would, would how we love each other at Sun Valley Church be anywhere close to that definition of love? How zealous for God are you? How radical is your love for others? Being zealous for God is radically loving others both inside and outside of the church. The, this includes your love for those who don't yet know Jesus. So let me ask you, as, as a way of, of drawing you into the, the text today, in what ways have you demonstrated your zeal for God? How zealous are you for the saints? And how about outside the, the, the church? How zealous are you for the lost, for those who don't yet know Jesus? When was the last time you invited someone to Sun Valley Church? These questions are simply designed to get you thinking about your zeal, your passion for God, your knowledge of God. So today, I want to take you to the next stanza in Psalm 119. We just finished the Tzade stanza. We're going to move into the Quoth stanza today. That is verses 145 through 152, the Quoth stanza. And I want to show you another way our zeal for God can be identified from this 
text today. Starting in verse 145, the psalmist writes, With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before the dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Today, from this stanza, I want to show you that knowing God will not only produce zeal for him, zeal for his word, but will also produce a robust prayer life. If you truly know God, you'll be zealous for him, zealous for his word, and this will all be demonstrated in a robust prayer life. You'll be zealous about prayer. If you have recognized spiritual drift in your life, and by the way, all Christians experience spiritual drift. If you are there today or have recognized it there recently, I want you to stay close to me today in this sermon. Uh, maybe the Holy Spirit will identify some areas of your life that are lacking and, and graciously grant you repentance, graciously grant you life and uh, victory and deeper affection for Jesus. He, he does this, you know. He does this regularly in the preaching of his word. Uh, history is full of examples of men and women and children who have been radically changed by sitting under the preaching of God's word. And this is my regular weekly prayer, that God would take his word and by his Holy Spirit radically grab hold of your hearts and do something with it. So maybe, maybe it's you today, maybe it's me, that the Holy Spirit will grant great blessing. So what is the first thing we see here regarding this commitment to a deeper prayer life, zealous prayer. Well, I think in verses 145 and 146, you cannot miss this, praying earnestly. A, a robust, zealous prayer life includes earnest prayer. As you read through this stanza, you can't miss it. Just look at these first two verses. He says, with my whole heart, I call to you, save me, help me. That's earnest prayer. The words answer me and save me are staccato like pleas to God from a person who knows that life depends on God's sustaining grace. Anyone who has been in a tight spot can relate to what I'm saying and what this author is saying and feeling and why he is crying out to God. Have you been in those tight spots in your life where these could easily be your prayers? Help me, save me, answer me. I'm calling out. I think if you've been a Christian for long, this is something that you can identify with. The prayers that we are reading here in these two verses are, are not carefree, nor are they carefully crafted prayers that someone might make that who they have a lot of time on their hands, or from someone whose circumstances are, are calm. 
and, and comfortable. These are not the prayers of that comfortable 21st century Christian whose children are doing great, whose job is secure, and whose marriage is running smoothly. These are prayers of survival, aren't they? Yeah. If you're going through tough stuff, you want to be familiar with this. The great Charles Spurgeon said this about earnest prayers. There may be no beauty of elocution about such prayers, no length of expression, no depth of doctrine, no accuracy of diction, but if the whole heart be in them, they will find their way to the heart of God. Isn't that what you want, friend, with your prayers? Isn't that why you pray? <laughs> to, to connect with the heart of God? To connect with the only one who can do something about your circumstances? Isn't that why we pray? I think so. This is what we want. When you're in trouble, you just blurt out whatever comes to mind. You don't spend time sitting there and getting out your journal and crafting a fine-sounding prayer that might impress the people in your small group. No, you blurt out to God what's on your heart. Save me, answer me, help me, keep me. We're so focused on our trying circumstances that everything else takes a back seat. The only thing that matters to us in times like this is that we are speaking to the only one who can do something about it. What we learn from these earnest prayers and these two verses is that being zealous for God includes praying earnestly. And by the way, not just when times are tough. If you're zealous for God, your prayer life will show it. If you're not zealous for God, your prayer life will show it. Here's a little secret, if you're interested in secrets. One of the most important ways to develop a deeper affection for Christ and become more zealous for God is by praying earnestly. Do you want to deepen your affection for Christ? Do you want to be in more love with your Savior? Insert earnest prayers. All right? There are some examples in Scripture of what earnest praying looks like. And isn't this a wonderful thing? Spiritual truth is always exemplified in Scripture. So we can follow it. We can model after it. And I want to show you, too, that you're familiar with. Peter. You remember Peter. A lovable Peter who was on the Sea of Galilee with his friends, his disciple friends, without Christ. Remember, Jesus had stayed behind after the miracle of feeding of 5,000. He sent his disciples across the sea intentionally by themselves. Lo and behold, they get into a storm, and things are getting pretty hairy. And then Jesus comes walking on the water past their boat. Just like you, they freaked out. You would do the same right? And they got all afraid, and Jesus says, don't fear, don't fear, it's me, it's Jesus. And of course, Peter says, if it's you, prove it, tell me to come to you, come to you, I want to come out to you on the water. Jesus says, come. So Peter jumps out of the boat, and by the way, Peter was the only of the 12 that would do that. Peter jumped out of the boat and started walking towards Christ until what? He started recognizing his circumstances, right? Right? Wait a minute, this is a storm. 
Humans can't walk on water. I'm in trouble. And then what's he do? He gives us an example of what earnest prayer is. You remember what he said? Do you remember what he prayed? Lord, save me. He quoted Psalm 145. I mean, 119, 145. He, he, he screamed out, he yelled a prayer of earnestness. I'm drowning, save me, God, save me. And of course, Jesus did. Jesus reached out his hand, pulled him up into the safety of the boat, and the story ends. This story was recorded in the Gospels to teach us a few things, but one of the, the, the interesting things is that Jesus cares about our genuine dependence on him and the earnest, uh, earnestness of our prayers. Jesus cares about that. It's earnest prayers that Jesus wants to hear. And then the second example I want to share with you is from the book of James and the life of Elijah. In James 5.16, James writes that earnest prayer is effective prayer. Earnest prayer is that effective prayer that we desire. And then he refers to the example of Elijah. And he quotes, uh, or doesn't quote, he reminds us of the story of Elijah in James 5, 17 and 18. James says, Elijah was a man with nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven uh, gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. There's the example. James said that, and this is wonderful that he included this, James said that Elijah is just like us. Had he not said that, we would say, knowing you, you would say, oh, that's, that's a prophet of God. Of course he can do that, right? But James said, Elijah, who has a nature just like you and me, prayed like this. He had human weakness. Elijah had difficult circumstances. Elijah was afraid at times and in his fear prayed. He says he prayed fervently, earnestly. He was afraid, of course, because King Ahab said that he was going to kill him next time he saw him. That might concern you a little bit, too. So Elijah was afraid and this fear brought on earnest prayer. He was afraid also of the effects of the drought on people that he loved. So he prayed earnestly that God would send rain, and lo and behold, God sent it. I think, I think Elijah was a nervous person, and yet God met him in the middle of his anxiety. God ministered to him in the middle of his earnest prayer. You see, the examples I'm sharing with you is to demonstrate that God wants to hear earnest prayers from his people. God isn't interested in shallow communion. God isn't interested in uninterested, unaffected communication with his people. He wants you to cry out earnestly to him, to bring all your cares before him, to lay them all at his feet, to pour out your heart to God. Not pretend like all is well. 
The zealous Christian is someone who prays fervently. And then secondly, we see in verses 147 and 148, they also pray continually. Look at those two verses again with me. Pray continually. Verse 147, I arise before the dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. So the author of this psalm here demonstrates that a prayer life looks like this. It's earnest and it's continual. It's earnest and continual. It, it, it's not just the manner of your prayers that matter, the earnestness of it. It's the frequency of your prayers that matter if you're zealous for God, if you know God. That's earnest and continual. Paul addresses the same thing regarding zeal in the life of a believer in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 when he says, pray without ceasing. You have that verse memorized, don't you? You don't? Let's memorize it together. Pray without ceasing. There you go. Now you've got it memorized. That and Jesus wept. You're working on good memory verses. Evidently, earnest prayer here must have regular, continual prayer added to it if someone is going to be zealous for God. Earnest and continual prayer. What does it mean to pray continually? This has been an enigma in the church for quite some time. Does it mean that we are always to be actively focused on a conversation with God, always on our knees, always with our hands you know, clasped and eyes closed? How would you get to work if you're going to obey this scripture? How would you watch your favorite sitcom? So I don't think Paul means that, pray without ceasing. I don't think the psalmist means that. I, I think if they did, we, we couldn't do much else except pray. And we have all sorts of other commands, don't we? Like meet each other's needs, like gather for worship, etc. And so it can't mean always have your hands crossed in your, or clasped and your knees bent. What does it mean? I think it means that our prayer life needs to be a regular part of our life. Very simple. We need to be praying people. Um, we, we need to be in communion with God. Genuine, earnest communion with God. We need to realize that our spiritual lives and even physical lives depend on God. And thankfully, there's biblical examples of this also, this idea of continual, consistent prayer. You remember Daniel, right? Why was he thrown into the lion's den? Because of his continual prayer. <laughs> he was always praying at the same time of the day, every day. He was continually praying without ceasing. So they threw him in the lion's den. So the psalmist prayed, it says, look at, look at these verses again, 147 and 148. He prayed before the sun came up. He prayed after the sun went down. He prayed without ceasing. It was part of his zealous life for God. I think we can say that the psalmist, that Daniel, David, Paul, even Jesus had the spiritual discipline of regular prayer. And so... Should we wonder 
at our lukewarmness, if that's the case, and know that we don't pray like we should? In verse 148, the psalmist uses this word meditate. It's a wonderful word. It's a wonderful concept, a wonderful practice. In fact, I spent a few sermons earlier on in our study of Psalm 119 uh, and preached and taught about the importance of meditation in the life of a Christian. And so I'm not going to repeat all that this morning, except to say this. Meditation is more than your daily Bible reading and daily prayer. Biblical meditation is more than that, but not less than that. Let me explain. It includes Bible reading and prayer, but it it also uh, is more, more comprehensive. Biblical meditation is bringing the Bible to bear on all areas of your life. Biblical meditation is bringing the Bible and all of its truth to bear on all of your life. It's making Scripture the grid through which you process life. Biblical meditation is the practice of drawing together all your reading, all your praying, all your sermon hearing, all your small group conversation, all your memorizing, and having your mind marinate on those things. That's biblical meditation, and it affects every aspect of your life. It can't help but do so. This is what God wants. A mind that is saturated with all that God is for us in Christ. When I did my sermon series on meditation a year or two ago, whenever it happened, I recommended a helpful book by David Saxton. David Saxton, S-A-X-T-O-N, and it's called God's Battle Plan for the Mind. I still recommend that, and I think it would do you much benefit. But biblical meditation is the thing that, that God uses to help us become more like Jesus, to help us conquer sin or, or change a bad habit. God uses biblical meditation to do that. For example, instead of focusing on how to defeat, defeat that particular sin, that, that besetting sin that you just can't shake, instead of focusing on the sin and fighting that sin, how about change your attention to that, from that fight to the glory of Christ? Instead of wrestling with the enemy over that bad habit, Focus on the love of Christ on Calvary for you. In other words, fill your mind, exchange what occupies your mind from the battle to the glory, from the struggle to the beauty of Christ. You will discover through that process of biblical meditation, victory. You will discover joy that you will never discover if you focus on the battle. This is biblical meditation. The zealous life is a life committed to earnest prayer, continual prayer. And next, in verses 149 and 150, praying the Bible. In other words, the Bible is the fodder from which you pray. I'll explain that. This is one of the important lessons I've learned as a Christian uh, in my prayer life. If my prayer life is going to be honoring to God, if it's going to be beneficial for my spiritual growth, it must reflect the heart of God. If my prayers reflect anything else, they're unproductive. 
my prayers must reflect the heart of God. The earnest, continual, zealous prayer is best reflected in the words that are saturated with God's words. This means that we ought to be filling our prayers with Scripture, with Christ's teachings, Christ's promises, Paul's exhortations. That's what ought to make up our prayers. So where's the heart of God found? Scripture, right? So fill your mind with Scripture. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to become a mighty, zealous prayer person. There are many times that we can't seem to find the right words to communicate our heart to God in prayer. Have you ever been there? You don't know what to say, what to pray, or how to pray? Well, in those times, here's an idea. Open the Bible and keep it open in front of you. Take in the words of Scripture into your mind and out of your mouth back to God. Read the recorded prayers in the Old Testament, in Psalms and the Prophets. Read the recorded prayers of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John. Pray them back to your Savior. Remember the prayers of Jesus. Pray them back to the one who prayed them first. Make them your own. Pray back to, to God what he has already said to you. Use the Bible as the lyrics of your prayers. If you've ever heard someone who seems to really be able to pray well, you will discover that their hearts and minds are saturated with Scripture. You ever notice that? Knowing the Scriptures makes you able to pray well. In my freshman year at Multnomah School of the Bible, I had two classes from Dr. John Mitchell, um, one of the most godly men I've ever met. My junior year, I had a class from Dr. Willard Aldrich in theology and another class from Dr. David Needham in Old Testament Prophets. In each case, in those classes, they began and ended the class with prayer. And every time they prayed, they instructed my heart on what it means to know God, what it means to know Scripture. It seemed that each of those men were personal friends with God, and I wanted that. And, and not only did they demonstrate that friendship in their prayers, but they brought us as students along with them to observe, to benefit from. Just listening to them pray and, and hearing the relationship between the Almighty God and a simple man. And I wanted that. I never tired of hearing that in my daily classes with them. I always wanted to have that depth of prayer life and knew that it was directly related to my grasp of Scripture. And so I wanted to desperately grasp Scripture. They were praying the Bible is what they were doing. And they knew the heart of God. They prayed it back to Him every day in class. And we can do the same. The psalmist adds one more mark of a zealous prayer life in verses 151 through 152. Let me read those for you. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. 
Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. What does that sound like to you? Besides prayer. What is he saying? What's he believe? Can you see his faith in those prayers, in those two verses? Friends, faith is oozing out of those two verses. He says, you are near, Lord. He believed, he had faith that the God of the universe was near him, this simple man. Long have I known, that's faith, that, you're, that from your testimonies you have founded them forever. He had faith in the presence of God, in the, in the accuracy of the scriptures, in God's love and communication for his people. He prayed in faith. That's the fourth element of a zealous prayer life, praying by faith. Being zealous for God results in an earnest and continual prayer life that's filled with prayers that are forged in the furnace of Scripture and prayed in faith. Let me read that for you again. Being zealous for God results in an earnest and continual prayer life that's filled with prayers forged in the furnace of Scripture and prayed in faith. And we studied the book of James during our first break from Psalm 119, if you remember. We spent some time thinking about prayer because the book of James has much to say about prayer in the Christian life. He begins his letter with teaching on prayer. And he said, if you lack wisdom, pray to God that he'll give you wisdom. Remember that? Listen to what he says here then in the following immediate verses, verses six through eight of chapter one, James. But let, let him who asks in faith, let him ask in faith, rather, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded, unstable in all of his ways. Unstable, un, double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So if you want to receive wisdom from God, you must pray to God that he will grant it. But you must do so by praying in faith. You, you, you would demonstrate by your prayers that you believe that God can answer you and give you wisdom. Now, let me, let me expound on that a bit. Not believing that God can produce what we are asking for contradicts the purpose of prayer, doesn't it? If you really don't believe that God can pull this off, why are you wasting your time praying about it? The reason we pray is because we believe we are speaking to an all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving God whose heart beats for the welfare of his children. That's why we enter his presence. Because we believe he has something to do with it. In Mark 9, which I just got through reading in my daily Bible reading plan, you remember the story. A man asked Jesus to heal his demon-possessed son. And he brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus, and, he, and he, he, he asks Jesus to heal him. Do you remember how his request went? And, and this is the point of the story. If you can heal him, would you please do so? Is that the way you want to approach God? Hey, if you can pull this off, would you mind? 
Jesus picked up on that immediately. Being God, he, he said his words back to him. Jesus said to the father who asked him if he, if he could, Jesus' Jesus's answer to this man said, if I can? Are, are you sure you want to ask it that way? If I can? You remember the response of the father? The desperate father? It was beautiful. And I think is how we ought to be praying. He said, the father, immediately the father of the child cried out. There's the prayer. He cried out and said to God the son, I believe, help my unbelief. Can you pray that? Have you prayed that? Have you prayed that? We're like this faithless father in Mark 9, aren't we? So many times our prayers are a mixture of faith, hope, doubt, fear. One thing that's helpful to remember about praying in faith is that it doesn't take much faith at all to be successful. God's answers to our prayers are not dependent on our faith, but on his faithfulness. Our hope is not in our faith, but in God to whom we're praying. Do you remember what Jesus said about the amount of faith it takes to move the hand of God? You remember that? If you have faith the size of what? You can move the hand of God. Mustard seed. Almost invisible, it's so small. You just need a little faith because the God you're dealing with is a great God. So it just takes a little tiny bit of faith to move the hand of God because he is faithful and great and powerful. We need to be people. If we, if we want to know God, we need to be zealous for him. If we're going to be zealous for him, we need to be a people who pray well, who pray earnestly, who pray continually, whose prayers are saturated with scripture and who pray in faith. Oh, what a challenge. What a hope. What a goal. Let's pray.